Tune in weekly and listen to the Collateral Damage Podcast, where Michael Wilson and Maureen Kavanaugh host a variety of special guests to discuss topics and available services that will help you learn about the impact that substance use has on our lives, our families, and on our communities nationwide. Episodes and listening information can be found at www.cdpodcast.com. You can also search for Collateral Damage Podcast on your favorite listening platforms or watch previous and future episodes on YouTube. Don't forget to subscribe and share. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Collateral Damage. My name is Mike Wilson, and I'm here with my co-host, Maureen. Nice to be here, Michael, with you. Good to see you again. It's been a little while since we recorded. but um, And so today we have a special guest, someone that we've tried a couple times to get on, um, <laughs> Pierce Kanuka, who is going to uh, – did I pronounce your last name correct? Kanuka, yeah. Kanuka, Okay. And uh, today, Pierce is going to tell us a little bit about uh, where he is up at Granite Recovery Centers, what he does, um, as well as some of his experience working with individuals trying to recover from addiction. Um, And so, Pierce, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Appreciate you making this happen. And I know that was a that was a thing we had to make this (laughs) happen. It was. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you for joining us. I'm glad you were able to make it today uh, and set aside some time to uh, speak to us and, and give our listeners some insight into what it is that you do um, and what your experience has been working with families and individuals struggling with addiction. So could you? Well, my name is Pierce Kanuka. I am, my job title is Director of Spiritual Life for Granite Recovery Centers in New Hampshire. So I've been there for four years. Mm -hmm. It means I oversee certain parts of the program, Um, 12-step facilitation, education, some work with families, um, the yoga, Mm -hmm. generally the sort of, I guess you'd say the holistic wellness side of the program. Okay. So director of spiritual life. So you must be bringing, you know, uh, uh, your own research and your own experience to, to try to help people understand what spirituality means in the first place. I mean, I can't imagine that folks coming through the front door feeling very spiritual. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, Although that being said, you have to often undo a lot of that stuff. So a lot of people come in with spiritual baggage. Mm. Um, Needless to say, if they're coming into residential treatment, you know, whatever spiritual footing they have hasn't really been too helpful. Mm -hmm. Right. So one of the things that I do, and I... um, you know, it's, it's, it resonates well with them. It's a critique. I ask them basically what medicine has done for their recovery. Right. And they invariably tell me nothing. Mm. And I, you know, I think that's usually overstated. So I, I just, you know, break down my experience, which is I need a residential detox. Um, I can't do it on my own. I talk about some of the diseases I had as a result of drug addiction Right. And how medicine could treat those and, you know, make sure I'm okay. But then I ask them, I say, well, I I say, in the last analysis, all medicine really has done is get the drugs and alcohol safely out of my body. And then I ask them, I say, they can't get the drugs and alcohol out of my, and they always say mind. Mm. And that point, I introduce spirituality or psycho-spirituality. So recovery is really about that dimension as opposed to getting sober. I think that's one of the big misnomers we have is that recovery is about or follows from being sober. Yeah. Right. 
So it's a, so so you're you're trying to help them understand the difference between you know abstinence sobriety just just not doing what you were doing anymore which medication can assist in that get you over the the medical detox the 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 initial uh, clinical safety side of things but then on the other side of it you're talking to them about or enlightening them bringing them up to speed with you need more than that right That's you need right. something more than that if this is going to be sustainable or if you're going to find uh, inner peace or if you're going to be happy. Yeah, so you really start pointing to the more um, psychological and emotional dimensions of it mm -hmm. and why spirituality can be helpful there. But a lot of people, a lot of addicts in particular, they, they tend to identify um, or associate spirituality with simply feeling good. Mm. And I think that I call that, you know, dope fiending your spirituality, meaning you're looking at spirituality the same way you're thinking about it's basically it's the active addiction brain it's all about me feeling good all the time relief and yeah it's about relief and so much of what spirituality can do for us is help us meet adversity gracefully mm. so it's not about not feeling pain it's about dealing with the pain that inevitably follows from being human interesting um, yeah that's so much different because I, I, I identify with that, first of all, that I think all of my pursuit, you know, when I first, uh, not this most recent time that I got well, but prior to that, I had tried uh, engaging in the steps multiple times in, in, different, in different ways with different people. And uh, I do remember a time where I was actually trying to go through the book with somebody and I was chasing relief. Uh, I was I was looking for relief. And so I was going to every meeting I could, I was going all over the place, but I was still, I was still pursuing it like an addict. And when it didn't give me the relief that I wanted, I quit. And I went yeah. back to what I was doing. And I think that's, that's a pretty insightful way to look at it is that, you know, a lot of those folks, they may be engaged, they may be participating, but until they have a better understanding of spirituality, they are probably just chasing it like their brain tells them to. Oh, this is another that's form right. of relief. Get it. So what do you tell somebody when they're, when you come across somebody that's saying something, you know, like when you see it, when you can say it, that that's what they're doing, what Mike is talking about, what do you, how, how do you reach them? Well, I basically take it for granted that almost any client in front of me, and I'm just, you know, generalizing from my own experience, that there's something driving them being there that's not about recovery. It's about uh, getting the wife back, getting off probation. Uh, clearing up their financial troubles, saving their mortgage, that sort of thing. And I call that a, a Santa Claus spirituality, mm. meaning they're only interested in spirituality should they get what they want. If they don't get what they want, if the outcome is not to their liking, they say, well, that's all bunk or I'm not interested. Mm -hmm. And so if you, if you come at them with that, with skill, they'll all readily admit that that's what's going on and they'll get afraid. And I'll say, it's okay to be that way because almost all of us come in here like that. But at this point, the only hope you have is to be honest about that. Mm -hmm. And then I, then I use, you know, stories, usually my own of people who get better, but they continue losing things even after they get better mm -hmm. because that's very common. Mm -hmm. In fact, I'd say that's more common than not um, because you've done so much damage in the past that, a lot of these things that you're trying to salvage, you're not going to be able to. Mm -hmm. At the same time, they do need relief. But the real issue is 
when can they expect that relief? Right. And, you know, I think it's very American of us to expect the relief just by taking a pill, which is, you know, the kind of thinking that got us in the mess to begin with. So, you know, what I want to see them do is do seven steps in residential, read a fourth step. Most addicts, alcoholics, in the steps won't get much relief until they read a fifth step. Mm-hmm. But once they get the relief, it's not me selling a product anymore. I'm not a salesman. Until that point, I'm just the guy with a shtick. Mm-hmm. Once they have some relief, once they actually feel better, once their nervous system relaxes, then they start believing in the process because they can't doubt their own experience. Right. They can doubt my experience. They can doubt Mike's experience, but they can't doubt their own experience. So the ugly side of that is they have to work their asses off, <laughs> frankly, right. to feel better. And the good side of that is they have to work their asses off to feel better. And that's a, that's a lesson addicts need to learn that there's no immediate relief or gratification. It's, it's elbow grease. It's not supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be hard. (laughs) That's right. You know, every, every, every turn, you know, whenever you look at anything that has to do with changing your life, like if you want to lose weight, you've got to change your diet, your habits, your routine. If you want to change jobs, you've got to do career development, you've got to reconsider all of your options. If you and anything that you want to do is never going to be easy. Right. You know, it's going to be hard. It's going to require work. And I mean, being a, a, a an addict struggling with addiction, it was not just getting off the drugs. I had done that a hundred times, you know, a hundred different ways. It was changing the life that comes with it. And that's supposed to be hard. It is like you said, I I, I remember people were people were selling me a version of sobriety that wasn't real uh, for years. Uh, If you just get sober, things will get better. My parents believed it. The people at programs were telling me it. When I went to meetings, people would tell me. And I thought I was doing it wrong because every time I got sober, everything hurt. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't mean just like emotionally, like physically, everything hurt emotionally, financially, psychologically, everything hurt and things didn't get better. And so it wasn't working for me or I thought I was doing it wrong. And if I had had, you know, appears if I had had somebody there uh, who was explaining it differently and wasn't necessarily selling a quick fix to my addiction, I probably would have been more inclined to stick it out and fight through it, knowing that the the results were actually down the road, uh, yeah, not immediate. Well, that's my experience exactly, and so I think you know, as an industry or as a recovery culture, mm-hmm. uh, we're a long way from undoing that. Um, yeah, everybody thinks it's a, a, a country song played in reverse. You yeah. Be, you get the dog, the truck, the girl, everything comes back. <laughs> well, and it opens up this uh, space for every kind of shyster imaginable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, unfor- it's unfortunate ahead. that um, a lot of our, my, our children are getting involved in this before they've had, the, getting involved with drugs before they've had the experience of, um, of accomplishing things and, and attaining, you know, the things that we all want. And, so when someone's using from such a young age and they haven't had that experience, I would imagine it's even more difficult to get them to understand that, okay, now you have to do all this hard, because we all do this hard work. We, the, you know, all the people that have these things that have accomplished something, have finished school, have houses, have families, they've all done this really hard work 
right. it didn't happen magically, but when, but you do it gradually, you know, you first, you graduate from high school and then you graduate from college and maybe you go through a bunch of stuff without using drugs and alcohol. So you know that the next time you go through, you can do it, but they mm-hmm. haven't had that experience. Mm-hmm. So it must be very hard to, to have somebody come around to that. And I think it's so important that that perspective, but it must be very difficult for a lot of our young people that have been using since they were teenagers. Well, Maureen, I think you, you nail it. And the only thing I would add to that is what I'm seeing is that lack of uh, accomplishment, that lack of social intelligence, that's getting worse, mm-hmm. especially with our male clients. And there are reasons for that, but we're seeing, we're seeing people really ill-prepared for frankly, even for sober living. Uh, so what, what I see now compared to a client 10 or 15 years ago is much worse, mm-hmm. especially with the guys. That's interesting. Well, yeah. we're not teaching them life skills, you know? They're not, they're teaching, not teaching them life skills, and they've also really paid for, um, they're the guinea pigs of digital culture. Yeah. 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 That's a generation that's hard to, hard to treat, hard to teach, hard to connect with, um, hard to change. Yes, it's really a whole new set of challenges for sure. Right. Well, you know, I think when uh, when I was a uh, when I was a kid, when I was a student, um, I I caution even using that word. When I was attending school uh, as a high school student, um, you know, I had trouble paying attention, and a lot of other kids had trouble paying attention, and you know, but nobody really did anything about it. And you know, over the years, what I've noticed is that the the education system has had a lot of trouble adjusting to these new generations of kids these these uh, uh the ones that are dealing with the digital experiment so to speak and you know their their response is to try to get them to behave like kids who are not living in this world right you know mm-hmm. it's it's why are you so distracted why are you having trouble putting your phone down why can't you sit still why can't i keep your attention for more than 6 seconds um and you know, their frustration with that is, and their, you know, their normal immediate response is to, you know, medicate them, or at least that's my experience, you know, to diagnose and medicate. Well, you know, the education system has shown that they're trying to catch up to that, but that they've struggled over the years. And I think the addiction recovery industry has has had the same problem, you know, that to your point, it's, you know, there's a lot of services right now that are, that are designed to treat addicts and alcoholics from 10 and 15 years ago, a different generation, and they're not necessarily uh, very good at responding to today's addict or alcoholic with their different needs and their different abilities. I mean, to get someone to sit through um, a a big book study group uh, or to get them to sit through some sort of a a clinical support system at a program, and you're you're not sensitive to the fact that this is a 19, 20, 21 year old person uh, that struggles to pay attention, uh, lacks the comprehensive ability to wrap their, their mind around something like that. They're still craving their phone and social media and stuff like that, that their whole world was built on that. If you're not aware of that and you're not talking about it correctly, then you're not treating them like who no. they are. And that's, no. I, I just see that comparison that, you know, the addiction recovery industry is having the same issue that uh, the education system was, which is that they're not behaving. Let's medicate them um, and get them well, to it's respond. It's the mental health system generally. I mean, what we do is, you know, the narrative that we're all given 
as addicts is something along the lines of here's peers and he's a vulnerable individual, which could be, you know, they hypothesize what the vulnerability is. It could be genetic or psychological, mm-hmm. but that vulnerability meets heroin and that's what causes addiction. That's the implicit narrative that we all get. And it explains nothing. And what it subtly does is it blames the drug and it blames the addict. Because right. when you say I'm vulnerable, it's sort of a polite way of saying I'm defective, I'm different, mm. not right. like other people. And absent from all this is, a, is social context. And so the, the system itself is reactionary, meaning we don't have the will to look at things like um, offshoring of jobs, lack of housing, uh, misuse of psychiatric medication with children, uh, ask really hard questions about who profits from these systems. There's no talking about that. We continually say that you're depressed because of a, of a biochemical imbalance, not because you lost your high paying job and your husband abuses you. You know, mm. we don't, we continually return to there's a normal society that you're not adjusted to and we'll help you adjust yourself to that normal society rather than saying whatever's going on in society is driving these people into these facilities. And until yeah. we start looking at that, we're just going to be doing a bandaid. Yeah. But that's, um, the, that's the monster right there. That's the David and Goliath. That's us. You know, we can have a conversation right now, and I think a lot of people feel this, is that I look at it as a, a social issue, you know, that yeah, we as a society, so. and this is, I've heard you talk about this, and, and, you know, that we as society have strayed so far from actual connection, that generationally every kid is becoming more and more disconnected, more and more socially incapable, more and more isolated, more and more afraid of the world that they're growing up in. Why wouldn't they be depressed? Why wouldn't they feel anxiety? Why wouldn't they feel terrified and look for relief in substances and social situations? And so, you know, if, if we talk about, uh, it's like the Band-Aid, right? So we've got an open bullet hole, <laughs> you know, and, and people are just responding to that is that my child is struggling. I need to address this. And then the professional is like, okay, we need to focus on this child. And the treatment programs are like, how are we going to focus on this set of children or these individuals? But the big picture is that society is falling apart around us and the kids are responding to it the only way they know how or generations are responding to it the only way they know how. And when we talk about that, everybody's like, uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, what do we do about it? Uh, because it would require society changing. Yeah. What right? is it? Is it uh, the Mandela quote? We have to stop looking at, um, we have to stop pulling people Desmond out of the Tutu. river. Is it Desmond Tutu? Desmond Tutu, yeah. yeah. Stop um, pulling people out of the river and figure out why they're jumping, jumping in, in the, the first thing. place. Yep. Yeah, that's right. It's kind of, that's, yeah, but that's, that's a big, that's a big ask. And well, it's big, but we can't back down from it. No. I agree with you. But when it, whenever people talk about it, what I get is I get deer eyes. I get like, you know, as soon as we start talking and, and I, I'm sure you see the same thing is that, and I actually remember you saying when you spoke about dislocation theory is that it presents more questions than answers. You know, that's when right. you actually present the problem, um, for what it really is, it's almost too big to have an answer for. It's something that would require so many people coming together to create change, and we'd be pushing up against such a large system, i.e. political, uh, government, uh, pharmaceutical, financial, 
um, you know, all these different industries that want for their benefit to keep, yeah, well, to keep things the same. I mean, we'd be fighting for change, which would disrupt their, um, their way of life. I mean, think about if uh, there was a a group that was going around that wanted to legalize uh, all substances. And I remember hearing a DEA agent uh, came in and talked about it. Like there's a lot of law, law enforcement that wants this movement to happen. But if that happened and we started to legalize, decriminalize, regulate, whatever that process was, you'd be shutting down multi-billion dollar industries throughout the year. People would be losing jobs, careers would be lost, family systems would be broken, communities would break down. No matter which way you shift this, you're going to disrupt, you're going to stir the pot. People are going to be upset, they're going to fight back, they're going to feel like you're wrong. And so whenever I hear, I know what the problem is, I think we can talk about it very knowledgeably, but the question is, what do we do about it? Well, that's, you know, that's kind of where I live. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'll say this, the people that don't resist hearing about it are my clients. So when I'm standing in front of a room of 70 guys, many of them are those millennials who can't make eye contact. Mm. I can actually get some degree of traction and attachment with this data wow. because now you're really speaking to their experience. You're actually giving them real psychoeducation. Mm-hmm. You're not getting them rolling their eyes because you're giving them a relapse prevention packet. Right. Um, the other thing is, is, you know, what you're doing is exactly what needs to be done. So there's a lot of people who want to have the conversation. They just need to find that they have, you know, the, their interlocutors. They need to find the people to talk to, the podcast to listen to, mm-hmm. the books to read. Right. Um, that's the upside of social media that can happen there, mm-hmm. but they're not going to get it when they're watching politicians debate the issue or when they're reading editorials in the globe. Mm-hmm. Um, that's edited. So I think, I think the <laughs> thirst and hunger is out there. I just think it's about, you know, skillfully managing that. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, is that what a lot of Americans don't realize is there is some progressive social policy around addiction in Europe that really you know validates this whole dislocation thesis mm-hmm. where you're you're bringing people together you're giving them more than just a band-aid you're giving them housing education yep. all that job skills job skills and what what people don't want to face here is that we do not have the political will to do that right. so you know in maine you can be on 16 milligrams of suboxone a day that the state is paying for that the taxpayer is paying for but no one is going to be able to help you find a bed that night Mm. so basically you can be homeless on suboxone whereas if you were in the same if you were in an injection site in portugal you know they'd sit you down and they'd set you up with some health stuff and take care of the housing and Mm -hmm. say treatments there when you want it um they're willing to pay for that. Well, that's a so public really health. Comes, that's a public health crisis, though. They've they've well, determined that's, that that's a public health emergency, right? Well, yeah. Now you're now we're deep in the water of what's the difference between publicly funded health systems and privately mm-hmm. for profit. So mm-hmm. you know that's that's a big big part of the issue. Yeah. Well, you know, there's uh, um, I remember when I first when I first started uh, Base Day Recovery Services. You know, I, I had. I had a lot of people coming in that that didn't really understand uh, MAT, uh, medication assisted treatment, and and I I actually I'm a, a 
I, I used MAT initially. Suboxone is what helped get me from where I was to the steps. And it was the bridge. You know, I used it to bridge. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a very useful tool for me. But it would have been very easy for me to stay on it forever without any questions, just simply because it was doing what it was designed to do, which was to reduce the harm. But for who? And that was the question that I always had to struggle with is that, yes, it was, it was reducing the harm for me in a sense that if I was motivated enough, I would seek out a real recovery process to heal on the inside. But what it was really doing, it was, was reducing the harm to the community. And that that was really what the solution, that's, that's what was being sold to me was that just take this so you stop committing crimes in our town, just take this so you don't die, just take this so your family can relax. And it was reducing the harm in everybody else's life, in my community and stuff like that. And, you know, I feel like if, if I never spoke up, that would have been good enough for everybody. Except me. Right. Except me. Uh, yeah. Well, if setting the bar pretty low, I'm a firm believer in harm reduction, although I don't think we're doing it sensibly here. Um, but setting the bar low, you know, I think we, we could ask more of ourselves and one another. Well, the one, um, the, the one thing uh, you, you brought up Europe, right? And yeah. there was an HBO special where they were talking about, I want to say it was Portugal, um, where they had the, uh, the three tiered, uh, program where you could come in at the bottom and it was safe injection site, you know, some wraparound services. If you came on a regular basis, you go upstairs to the, you know, the uh, career center, residential treatment, detox, whatever. Third floor was some sort of long-term care plan. Um, and you could kind of graduate through the program as long as you showed up. And I remember one gentleman, and I've said this on a couple other podcasts before, but they had this one gentleman that they interviewed. He was an older gentleman, maybe mid fifties. And they asked him about his experience. And I think they use HAT over there, which is the heroin assisted treatment um, rather than methadone or suboxone. Right. And he goes in and he gets his one, two, three shots a day. And they asked him how he felt about it. And he said, you know, well, he's like, I don't have to do anything crazy to get my drugs on the street. But he's like, I feel like everybody just kind of forgot about me because I'm not doing anything like they just like he's just a forgotten maintenance individual that right. as long as he gets his stuff, everybody's fine with it. And, and, you know, I just identified with that because that's how I felt. I felt like as long as I just took my medicine and didn't cause any real problems that nobody was too concerned with whether or not I was actually getting well on the inside. And that, that bothered me. And I uh, really identified with that person when he said it. And that's, that's it the position I take. though, right? For me, it did. Yes. Yeah. Uh, for some others, I could see it becoming a catalyst for relapse or giving up. Uh, or reinforcing their sense of hopelessness that nobody really cares. I, I can see that. The thing I like about that, though, is now the emperor has no clothes. Right. So when we, when we regulate these things, we take the profit margin out of the game. Mm -hmm. And once, once drugs aren't, you know, massively uh, profitable, then you don't have gangster rap and escalades and strippers and guns and all this sort of thing. That whole culture goes with it. Sure. And now the young people, especially young men, can look at that and go, eh, you know, those guys are losers lining up to get their shot. Right. See, I, I personally believe that so much of my experience was, you know, I'm 56 years old, was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Mm -hmm. Meaning when I'm 11 years old, I'm at my friend's house looking at his big brothers, 
you know, rolling stones and the smell of weed and beautiful teenage girls. I have absolutely no defense against this. Mm -hmm. And so when I go through puberty, yeah, of course I'm going to go in that direction. Mm -hmm. But for the next 20 years, I literally have no energy for anything else. Between sex, drugs, and rock and roll, my life is full. There's no job, career, viable relationship. Right. You know. um, so there's such a there's such a collusion of a culture. You know, once again, it's it's the making money that reinforces mm. this. You know, so I love to tell my clients. You know, I thought I was some sort of outlaw, gangster, rebel, renegade. When really I was just a manufactured consumer. Mm -hmm. um, hmm. I like that. Yeah, it's it's true. I mean, I believe addiction has as much to as, as kissing cousins to things like hoarding, mm -hmm. eating disorders, shopping That's disorders. These, mm -hmm. This is a consumer disorder. So it's a yeah, absolutely. Well, there's the illusion that you can be a business person. Like you said, that, you know, the, the, the clinics and stuff like that, they take the, the venom out of the snake, so to speak. You know, when, when uh, prohibition came around, uh, it created the mob. You know, it created, yeah. Oh, yeah. it created a market, it created a culture, it created power, created money, and that was very inviting. And so that invited a lot of people to participate in that culture. And the same as every teenage kid can become a drug dealer. Every teenage kid can become a young entrepreneur or a businessman and, and manufacture power, create the illusion of power by being a middleman consumer, <laughs> you know, yeah. just getting between the customer and the supply and uh, getting a little taste. And, and that, that, that power that draws a kid into the culture um, would disappear if it was no longer available like that, if it wasn't just so, so easy to jump mm -hmm. in and pick up where the, uh, prohibitionary process has uh, um, created the market. We're not really looking at the massively um, morally corrosive effect of all this, mm. because what making drugs illegal does it creates these incredible profit margins, which corrupt everything around them. Mm -hmm. We're talking about money on a scale that, of course, it's going to corrupt law enforcement. Of course, it's going to corrupt you know, the legal profession, of course, it's going to create industries designed to exploit um, mm -hmm. the situation. It's, it's massively, massively corrosive. And history shows this again and again. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the reasons why Mao was able to defeat um, Chiang Kai-shek was Chiang Kai-shek was basically a mercenary who was running his army on opium proceeds. Mm -hmm. And those men were, they didn't win the loyalty of the people and they were decadent. Right. Um, we can see this with Castro in Cuba. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he won the hearts and minds of the people. They were against the mafia. They were against the decadence of Havana. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so you're seeing that here. You're seeing this sort of moral rot um, that's really, <clears throat> you know, I always say, tell my clients, I ask them, qui bono, qui bono, qui bono. Who benefits from you not getting better? Mm -hmm. And they can just start listing all the different things. And it ranges from the prison industrial complex to the drug cartel to big pharma to, the, to frankly, to the treatment industry, the $35 billion treatment industry. If you don't get better, they'll get a piece of you. If Capitalism. you get better, 
you cut a pocket in their a hole in their pocket. It's very interesting. Capitalism. Yeah. At its best. <laughs> Late stage, yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm not I'm not a communist, but no. you can do better than this. You know, it's funny. I just I just uh, binge watched because that's how I watch television. I don't know any other way to do it, you know, historically. <laughs> so uh, I just binge watched uh, Breaking Bad once oh, yeah. again. So if, if any of our listeners have seen that, that's an interesting show. But as you were talking, I was just picturing Walter White and his transition from, you know, a, uh, a high school chemist, uh, chemistry teacher, works at a car wash, you know, a uh, small family out in New Mexico um, and was absolutely corrupted by the money and the power and the breakdown and morality just across everyone that this touched. You know what I mean? All the way down to Heisenberg and, you know, killing people and cartels. <laughs> I mean, yeah. as you were just talking about that, it's all I could picture was just that, you know, he, he identified um, a need he identified a product. He identified the fact that he could manufacture it independently. And because it was illegal, it opened up a free market for him to do so. And all the power and all the money, and it was all there. And it was all so corruptible. You know, it took this. And he told, he told himself he wasn't going to cross this. He was going to stop yeah. here. Yeah. And I only need this ran, much. Ran every red light. He said, I'm doing this for my family right up until the very last episode of season five. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know i mean it was just like i watched that and that's what i think of just how corruptible somebody could be based on the the fact that it's illegal it's a it's an available market if it wasn't an available market there wouldn't be so much crime around it you know right. like like all right let me ask you this Piers, where do you go to buy your illegal cigarettes right now <laughs> where do you go to buy your bootleg alcohol right now do you know what I mean? Right. How many kids right. at high school are selling illegal cigarettes? How many right. of them are making their own alcohol? Yeah, They're, but they were right. finding that the vape stuff when that was taken off the market. Uh, exactly. Yeah, you know what? Paying and, and twice as much for it. Listen, my I have uh, uh, I have just received information, uh, it, and it's not like super special information, but just uh, from high school that now there's uh, single use vapes. Um, and, and not necessarily single use, but like one day you get one day out of it and it's in the shape of a cigarette. It's nasty. The nicotine is garbage, but they're dirt cheap. And so you can buy boxes of these things, right. For, for dollars. And then kids are now bringing them because it's been banned and, and, you know, regulated and you can't get this. They're shipping them in. Okay. So they don't know where they're getting shipped from. And the kids are buying them for just a couple bucks a piece in large quantities. And then they're selling them for $10, $15, $20 a piece as one-day vape use pens. And then they're disposed. A market was right. created. It was yeah. identified. And it is being exploited. And as, I, as your earlier guest, Westoff, shows that so much of this now is happening on the dark web. Right. right. That we want to think all the fentanyl's coming up through Mexican cartels. Well, significant percentage is clever boys in their basement ordering directly. Yep. Onion routers. Find a is way. That what they call it? Well, the onion router is how you get into the dark web. Uh, oh, I get so you. So it's a downloadable browser that, well, if you're a listener, don't do this, yeah, but just it's a, <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'll bleep that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so there's, there's a browser that you have to get into to get into the dark web, um, you know, and, and access these uh, illegal sites and, you know, use VP, I mean, uh, um, 
uh, IP tracer uh, programs so that mm -hmm. people can't trace you. It's, I mean, it's, you, you imagine the internet is a, a crazy place already. You can do brain surgery through a YouTube video if you really wanted to. But uh, so if kids, you know, want to know how to do it, they just they just go on and find out. Someone will tell them. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Well, Pierce, I, I, you mentioned before that you work with families, and I'm wondering what you know. This is all like the ideas that you're talking about seem so kind of obvious when you say it. But this is news to the families, you know what I mean? They don't understand where this is all coming from. And then right. they, beat, they beat themselves up. And you know, it's, it, there are cases when it, it, you can see it's a direct relation to how somebody was raised or brought up. But for the most part, everybody's doing the best they can, you know, and they're trying yeah. as hard as they can. But what do you tell families when they're about what, you know, this, the dislocation theory? What do you talk to them about their own children that they really don't understand anymore? Well, the first thing I like them to do, or try to get them to do, is to put a mirror up in front of their own faces. So I think one of the most powerful aspects of dislocation theory is the very definition that Bruce Alexander uses for addiction. And his mm -hmm. definition goes like this. Any overwhelming involvement with a substance or an activity that is harmful to you or your social relations. Mm -hmm. So overwhelming involvement just means the time, the money, the energy you spend on said substance or activity comes at the expense of your family, your parenting, your marriage. Vodka and heroin, substance, but activity. So now we're in the territory of food, digital devices, gambling, shopping, eating, um, sex. And then I ask the parents, look around you in the civilian world, in the non-addicted world, and tell me what you see. And they all go, well, it's pervasive. The addiction is everywhere. So I get them to see that the addiction is actually in the, in the soil of the social context is arising out of that. Mm -hmm. And what this does is it enables them to look at their kid in a slightly different light. The kid isn't so pathologically different. The kid actually is suffering from the same condition that maybe the husband is, meaning he's a workaholic and never sees his family. That would be overwhelming involvement with the activity of work. Mm -hmm. And once we do this, you see, now we've taken a huge, we've taken stigma off of the addict in a way that the disease model never could, because you're saying, oh, yeah, my girlfriend tells me that, you know, she feels like her child is competing for her attention with her phone. Mm -hmm. You see, once you have that identification, then they're 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 beginning to say, oh. There's something in me that's not so different than my addicted child. So that's the first thing I do. Mm -hmm. Then the other things I do, I think, are things that are very common. Uh, well, not common, but I think Mike does them very effectively. I let them know that it's not their fault, that there is a certain thing going on in the culture that's more powerful than what goes on in the home, especially around adolescence. I also emphasize that them thinking it's their fault actually disempowers them from being able to be effective. Right. Um, mm. I also really try to emphasize that it's not about them making some sort of mistake, meaning that the difference between recovery and um, relapse is not some mistake that the parent can make because they tend to get very uh, micro about it, you mm -hmm. know, do I let them smoke cigarettes? Do I let them have their phone? Do I mm -hmm. monitor this? And that you'll just lose your mind if you do that. 
So I'm trying to get parents to see that this is a larger thing that they also are involved with. My hope is that there will be greater dialogue between addicts, the recovery community, and the civilians. Mm -hmm. That's my hope for dislocation theory, that it brings the parents, the EMTs, the clergy, uh, European voices to the table, that the discussions like the one we're having now become more common, especially using this medium. Yeah. Because if we're going to meet this thing, especially in America, where we can't really hope for the government to do anything too, um, too proactive, it has to be a grassroots movement. So totally I try, I, yeah, I think we need to empower the parents to join the movement. Yeah. And one of my big criticisms of the 12 step movement, you know, I'm a 12 stepper from way back is that we tend to, you know, hang out in our church basements and sort of, congratulate ourselves in our recovery mm -hmm. and judge people who don't do what we do. Mm -hmm. Whereas what we're really trying to do is bring, and I believe bring the harm reduction people into the conversation too. bring everybody in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But don't, it don't, you know, the one person I would not invite is the big pharma rep right. or his minion who works at the hospital. People who have financial gain. Right. Um, That's right. Yeah. And, and don't defer to them. You see, this is a, this is a big message with me: is why do we continually defer to these people when, if you really look at their historical track record in treating addiction, you know, the medical profession gave us insulin and bromide comas, they gave us electroconvulsive shock therapy for addiction, mm. they gave tens of thousands of addicts frontal lobotomies, mm -hmm. and we've treated opiate addiction with opiates again and again and again, starting in the eighteen nineties. So why do we keep deferring to them when they have no track record? And on the other hand, we've got all these people who actually have amazing track records, although some of, a lot of them are paraprofessional. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, just trying to shift the, the, the terms of the dialogue or debate. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm even seeing, um, I've been hearing a lot lately from several different places about, um, doctors giving Suboxone for alcohol. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah which, sure. Which I'm like, okay, well, now let's give them uh, two addictions. They didn't even have an addiction to opioids before. I'm sure it's successful in some way, but it seems ill-advised after all I've been watching. Um, so I agree with you that that's probably the last person I would go to, which is a little frightening because parents are looking for answers and they don't know where to go. And you would think that your first, you know, you would, your initial response is to go to your medical professional. And that's not always the right place to go. Um, no. I'm no. Also, I mean, you know, they're asking, I do a lot of work with families and they ask me a lot about prevention. What do we do about prevention? And I think that, you know, I have one program that I know of down in Plymouth County that's working. It's called uh, Preventure. And it's originated up in up in Canada, and they're teaching um, the skills like yoga, like um, meditation, to um, self soothe. To uh, they're teaching um, self advocacy, self advocacy, trying to how how can you advocate for yourself? They're teaching these skills to young children instead of teaching them about drugs, because that's that's right on. I, and I, I don't know why we're not using that more because I just was at a meeting just a week ago where um, I think the partnership has this whole campaign and they were going to use it in the school district in a school district up in uh, Essex County. 
in Massachusetts, and it's a sticker and poster campaign. Yeah, it's more of the same. It's more just say no and dare. And so a couple things there. I mean, in Iceland, I don't know if you know about this, but they I were was seeing, just going to bring that up. Yes. Yeah. Do so it. they were seeing the spike in adolescent drug abuse. And to attack it, they created a, a voucher system. So every family that had a kid in middle school or high school got a voucher that they could use for an after school program in the arts or sports. Awesome. They didn't, they, nothing cautionary, no talk about drugs at all, right. and immediately it starts plummeting. So you give adolescents something fun to do with each other, with mm -hmm. one another, and they're great. Um, it's, it's not rocket science, but there's a tension here. You see, and this is, this is a big deal. You've got that, which makes total sense, and then you've got, and I'm going to, you know, I haven't really said this on a podcast yet you've got the disease model. Mm -hmm. And if you really start unpacking the history of that term, you'll see that it, it's really a very, it's a political creature. It was created largely because you wanted to reduce stigma mm. and you wanted to get access to medical research funds. But ever since it came out in the 50s or got big in the 50s, mm -hmm. there have been people neuroscientists, a lot of them, who have been pushing back on it. Uh, these are Stanton Peel, um, Carl Hart, presently a guy named Mark Lewis. And what they're saying is they agree with the people that advocate the disease model that there's structural changes to the brain as a result of doing drugs. But they're saying to call that a disease is to medicalize a social problem. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you, if you play cello every day, your brain is going to show that. Right. If you are a UFC fighter, your brain is going to show that, mm -hmm. you know, that we can change our brain for better or for worse. And by making connections, um, for instance, what they see now is people that have been in recovery from opiate addiction for um, a year or so, what they see in the frontal lobe, uh, absence-based recovery, is they see that there's more gray mass. There's actually more volume in the frontal mm -hmm. lobe. And that's because the addict's not living in, in the limbic, in the, yep. in the dopamine reward circuitry. And now more energy is, becomes more interested and engaged. Mm -hmm. My executive functioning actually improves. Right. And that's still hard science. That's neuroscience. Right. And that's it. That, yeah. But it's no it's pills. No pills. So involved. important for people to understand the physiology of addiction and, and, yes. and, and not confuse it with now you have a disease, there's nothing you can do about. Right. And so if we start debating this disease model, we start taking a little bit of the strength off of that, that and pointing to things like what you're describing, <clears throat> we'll start shifting the terms of the debate. Mm -hmm. it's still you see it's still a, that's still a point that I, i'm apt to censor myself on because if you say this may not be a disease then immediately people are going to say yeah. oh you're saying it's willpower yeah. well yeah. willpower versus disease that's a false binary yeah there's other you, things in between you get lost in the comments there if you start doing that stuff yeah you do but yeah what can you know you have to be willing well, to the, the truth the truth is is that the medical industry is you know focused on symptom relief and right. you know for the most part and you know i know they they do treat issues but what i'm saying is is when you're struggling with addiction and you come to your doctor and you say i'm struggling with addiction 
their first response is the same response you get at the emergency room is how can we relieve the symptoms temporarily yeah. while you address the issue, right? Um, you know, I have a broken back. The first thing they do is they address the pain. They, they manage some of the lifestyle issues so you don't make it worse. And now they're like, all right, then we're going to have to do something about it. But with addiction, too many people are just okay with symptom relief. And, yeah. you know, that as long as I don't have the symptoms, my family's okay with right. it. I'm okay with it. You know what? Forget we even came. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. I'll come back if the symptoms come back. And that becomes like, you know, a repetitive pattern. And so. Well, that's sobriety. Sobriety is a form of symptom relief. It's sobriety sucks. Behavior. Sobriety yeah. sucks. The most painful experience I ever had. Sobriety without recovery was the most painful experience I ever had. Doing Don drugs P. was easier. Don P said the, the primary cause of relapse was sobriety. Yes. Because sobriety hurts. <laughs> yeah. Sobriety yeah. hurts. Listen, Piers, uh, we actually, you know, we've, we're running out of time. But what I, I, I want to do is uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. This has been great. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank I'm, you. I'm hoping you might be open to a part two somewhere down the road because there's still so much more to talk about. And I really, I value your opinion and I know our listeners do as well. So, um, you know, if you'd be, if you'd be interested in joining us again, uh, we'd be happy to have you. Oh, I'd be, I'd be more, I'd be honored to. So thank now, you so much. um, You've got a couple of things. I believe that you co-authored a book. Um, and I co-authored a book with Eric Spofford called mm -hmm. Real People, Real Recovery. Mm -hmm. um, and is that available with, on all platforms? Amazon, yeah. Yep, okay. Um, so a lot of these issues will be touched on or in, addressed in there. Okay. Um, the thing I would really like to plug mm -hmm. is um, I'm part of a nonprofit called Liberation Institute with yes. my wife, Jessica, and a man named Kevin Martin. And we bring wellness recovery and um, educational services to the inmates in the main state prison. We oh, actually awesome. teach them to be, it is awesome. It's the best thing I do. Um, we teach them to be yoga teachers at the 200 hour level, in addition <laughs> to doing recovery stuff. That's terrific. So, well, you know what we'll do is we'll put those links up on this episode, but maybe if we have you come back, you can tell us a lot more about that because I actually want to hear more about that myself definitely. as well. So. Would love to. Okay, Fantastic. let's do it. No, definitely. All That's right. awesome. My man, right. thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you. Have a good day. All right, take care, Pierce.